This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. American grand strategy is turned almost completely upside down by the fall of France. Hello, everyone. This is Jesse, and welcome to the Real Time History Podcast. And, folks, I'm really excited for us to kind of restart the podcast after a short uh, hiatus, and we have. A great guest with us today, uh, Dr. Michael Nyberg is the Chair of War Studies in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the United States Army War College. That must be quite an extended business card for, for the title. But for our purposes today, he is also a prolific author. And I don't want to exaggerate here, but I think it's fair to say we could slot him into the category of a rock star of accessible history publications. The list is very long. It would take us half the podcast to list them all. But a couple of my favorites that have appeared recently include How the First World War Created Modern America, and if you can believe this, folks, a short introduction to the Versailles Treaty. So I don't, it's quite a feat to try to write anything short on that treaty. But these are some of the reasons why we reached out to Dr. Nyberg to speak with us today. And it's actually his second appearance on the podcast, I think, years ago in a previous iteration of the podcast. Uh, you also joined us. And we're here today because we want to talk about France in 1940. And Dr. Nyberg's new book, When France Fell, The Vichy Crisis and the Fate of the Anglo-American Alliance. So, Dr. Nyberg, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Now, when I first saw your book kind of hit the shelves, hit the presses, I didn't get it right away, but I, I heard about it. And I thought, oh, okay, here's an accessible history of the six weeks where... France was defeated. That had a big impact in World War II. But I learned a bit more when I actually got the book and started to look into it because, of course, the focus is not on the event and the military defeat of France so much as it's on the diplomacy, the security policy, mostly between the U.S. and France, but also in this context, of course, as the subtitle says, the U.S. alliance with Britain. So I've heard a few different stories, interesting ones, of what led you to take this angle on this topic. So which one is the real story? Is it the Jeopardy story or is it one of the others? <laughs> well, the Jeopardy story happened as I was working on the book. The, the, the Jeopardy had a, a question about the name of the regime that governed France during World War II, and none of the three contestants was even within miles of getting it right. And this is not atypical for history questions. And I, I remember getting very visibly upset about it in the, in the living room. But I think the idea was already there in my head that I was going to want to do something. Uh, I, I had been thinking about how we study and think about grand strategy and the case studies we usually use are, are, are the successful ones, the, the nations that do this particularly well. And I have a kind of theory here, or at least stuff that I've done in the classroom here, that there is value in looking at states that put together bad security, bad grand strategies, and, and what, what was wrong? Where did they get the mix? The model we use here ends ways and means. Where, where did they get their mix wrong, and why is that? And I think a lot of it comes with visions of history. It comes with the way that people understand the past. So I was interested in playing with some of those themes, and I think the Jeopardy question just sort of put me over the edge. I like that. I like that, especially with a, a former Canadian host having hosted Jeopardy the whole time. I, I will make any artificial connection to Canada that I can. I'm not. I'm not a CanCon. Yeah, we got to get some CanCon exactly. in. Uh, it's a true story that when I was a little boy, I met Alex Trebek. Uh, my family was no on way. vacation in Western Mexico. Uh, and I, he had a backgammon board open uh, and nobody to play. And a precocious, however old I was, nine years or something, uh, played Alex Trebek in backgammon. Uh, I'm pretty sure he let me beat him, but he bought me a Coke and I went on my merry way. So I was an Alex Trebek fan from way, way back. This podcast has taken an unexpected and wonderful turn, folks. <laughs> but I, I, will, I will take us back uh, to the history side. 
I like that concept of uh, studying failure as well. It kind of reminds me of, I think it's Karl Popper's theories need to be falsifiable to kind of have validity. So mm-hmm. I kind of like that connection there. And I want to start with a question, maybe it's a bit of a nerdy question, but a question that I wondered, uh, you know, when looking at the book about the historiography. I mean, obviously the book is written in an accessible way. You don't spend a bunch of chapters going through all the minutiae of what's been written on the topic before. You reference a few important works, but where do you see your book fitting in that? Like, did you see the kind of proverbial, typical, oh, there's a gap in the literature that I want to fill? Or did you kind of have a bone to pick with some of the more popular interpretations of uh, the diplomatic storm around uh, Vichy? Uh, where, where do you see yourself fitting in that? I think more the first, the the kind of gap. I mean, Robert Paxton's book on Vichy France is just such a monumental, deservedly so, such a monumental book. Um, and so just such a brilliant, brilliant book. And it's remained it's remained a, a feature of the of the historiography for decades. So uh what was missing from his analysis though was an understanding of foreign policy, because that wasn't what he was interested in, and the way that the United States uh reacted to Vichy and what it did with Vichy. So I guess in my head I was trying to do the one part of Vichy France that Paxton did not do, at least not in that book. He touched on it a little bit in other works. Uh but there was another side to this that nobody had really thought of, which is what did the United States do? How did we think about this problem? Uh, what were we doing as a grand strategy in relation to Vichy? So those were the driving questions. And I was aware, as I said, that Paxton is still the giant in the field. I, there's no book that compares to that one in my view. So I wasn't trying to rewrite that or or or, or nitpick with him in any way at all. Uh, I was trying to just say there's another side to this coin that that he just fundamentally wasn't interested in in that project. Right. And I think, at least for me, as an outsider, I've read a little bit on 1940, but it doesn't, it doesn't draw especially the popular attention that, you know, essentially after D-Day draws, or at least even after Barbarossa draws. So there were a lot of, I would say, kind of surprises for me in the book, things that I hadn't really thought about that much. I feel like US grand strategy before 1941 flew under my radar more or less. And one of the things that that really hit me right from the start of the book are these assumptions up until the fall of France that the US was making about its global grand strategy, security, about the role of France in that. You don't really think of France playing a particularly key role in US grand strategy before uh, the U.S. even joins the war. So why don't you share a bit about that? I thought that was one of the most interesting aspects of the book. Sure. The United States is just assuming, and I don't even think there's much analysis done, it's just a presumption that France is going to play the same role in this war that it played in the First World War, i.e. it's going to hold the Germans off long enough to let the Americans choose the time of their entry into the war and time to figure out what the war in Europe looks like and build an army and a doctrine and all of those things that will be appropriate for that conflict. The political science term for this is is free riding, that the United States will free ride on French security. So when that goes away, there's a remarkable memo by Matthew Ridgway that we have here in Carlisle where Ridgeway says, look, before this happened, here's the list of things we were planning to be able to do security-wise. After the fall of France, we can probably do one of these, and even then, only if we accept risk in another part of the world, in this case, the Pacific. So it really is a moment when these kind of fundamental assumptions about what American security is, how you're getting there, if grand strategy is your theory about how you can defend yourself and pursue your interests, American grand strategy is turned almost completely upside down by the fall of France. And it's it's the case that American strategists really were struggling. You can, you can sense it in the memoranda that they're writing. You can sense it in the conversations that they're having. They are really struggling for how to meet the nation's basic security needs in the absence of that anchor on the European continent, which was the French army. Now, was this something that was a consensus in the US? Because I know there's this sort of isolationist stream of thinking, right? And maybe there are different ideas in the in the two main parties. Was there maybe kind of an unspoken consensus that France is doing this, uh, playing this kind of role? 
Um, or were there sort of actual open disagreements about about what to do with it? Um, I think that there was a general unspoken agreement, and isolation is only possible to the extent that you believe there is no direct threat to you. Once there is a direct threat to you, the question goes from should we be isolationist or not, however one defines that term, to how do we protect our interests in the absence of key allies? And Britain at this point, remember, is barely holding on itself. So there is, I think, an unspoken – it's just an assumption. No, no one in the United States, any more than they do in France or Britain, has this feeling that in six weeks the French army is just going to go away, that this anchor of European security is just going to vanish. And once it does, I mean, the vast majority of the isolationist conversation comes to an end. The question now is, how do we protect ourselves? How do we reorient ourselves? What, what strategic choices do we need to make? And what risks do we need to begin to accept? So that's the reason why I argue in the book that I really think it's the fall of France, not Pearl Harbor, that forces the United States to position itself in this new and unstable world and, and to really think about what belligerence in World War II might look like, and fundamentally to come to the very shocking realization for a lot of Americans that we no longer control the timing of our entry into this war. Somebody else now does that. Right. I think there's there's a quote that I noted down from the book, yeah, basically saying that the war begins in those critical weeks of May rather than on December 7th, 1941 in some ways. Now, unfortunately, in in a sense for Hollywood, uh, that's not going to make a great Tom Hanks movie. That uh, all of a sudden bureaucrats are and and strategists are wondering uh, what to do after a faraway country gets defeated. But I think that's also one of the things that stuck with me about this book. You mentioned that there's kind of palpable stress. You know, how do we reorient ourselves? How do we start up what has been, in many ways, a kind of dormant approach? to the military and uh, military security. Give us maybe the Coles Notes version, so the, the quick version of how does the US figure that out? How do they restart the engines, so to speak, now that France is gone? Yeah, well, if any Hollywood producers are out there, I could see Tom Hanks playing Cordell Hall very nicely, the American okay. Secretary of State. So okay. if anybody's out there listening, let's let's talk let, let's talk deal. I'll put you in touch with uh, – have your people call my people. The first thing that happens in June is just this flurry of legislation that gets passed. The naval spending bills, which had really struggled to get out of congressional committees because nobody wanted to spend the money. After the fall of France, everybody is throwing projects on top of that bill – to the point that U.S. defense spending becomes something like 125% of, of what was then the federal budget. So there's an enormous amount of money that that the United States spends to build 30,000 airplanes, a 2 million man army. Uh, there's talk of, of a 3 or even maybe a 4 million man army until George Marshall pairs those numbers down. Franklin Roosevelt writes a remarkable memo in which he tells the attorney general to ignore a Supreme Court rule on wiretapping uh, because now that the nation is at such risk that you're going to have to make some compromises in civil liberties. And they know what they're doing as they're doing it. They realize the tragedy of what they're doing, uh, but they realize they just don't have any more options anymore. What to do about Vichy becomes a central part of that equation. But there is this incredible flurry of opening up the checkbook in a way for defense, in a way that the United States had not done, except for that brief 1917-1918 flurry. So it's really quite remarkable. And it, it's part of the metaphor, if you want, of a, of a sleeping nation waking up, which other people have used. But it really does feel that way, a sense that we now have to catch up in a way for the isolationist years of the 20s and 30s. So it seems to me like it's you know, it's rushed and it's sudden, but it's also calculated. Whereas, you know, I, I hate to break it to any of our listeners out there, but it seems like we're chipping away in a sense at the American idea that all of a sudden with moral righteousness after Pearl Harbor, we decided we wanted to rearm and participate in a war. So it seems like maybe you're nibbling around the edges of that uh, kind of public popular assumption. Yep. And I definitely want to do that. I, I absolutely want to do that. Uh, because I think if you take that Pearl Harbor view of things, it dehistoricizes the problem of World War II in a sense. If you if you start the discussion on December 7th, 1941, you're missing the things that got America to that point. And it's an easier narrative 
to say, well, we were just minding our own business and then sort of out of nowhere we get attacked. That's a narrative that's comforting, but it doesn't really help us understand how that problem came to be in the first place. And it doesn't give us any wisdom for today for thinking about the ways in which our actions on the global stage are either increasing risk or decreasing risk in a variety of of areas around the globe. So that was a message that I, I didn't want that to be a hidden message or, or, or a covert message. I wanted that to be an absolutely overt one, that the problem begins long before Pearl Harbor. And American strategists and politicians clearly recognized it as such. Yeah, that, that's one of the, another one of the things that really came through in the book that I found uh, really interesting and really striking and kind of helped me tweak a bit of my thinking about the period. And I'm afraid, folks out there listening, that the minefield it gets even worse when we talk about the diplomatic approach to the Vichy state or the Etat Francais, as it was temporarily called. That was also something I really didn't know that much about. I can't say I was as surprised at, at that particular aspect because it seemed like a bit of realpolitik uh, then really starts to play a role. But can you tell us a bit about this American approach to this new kind of very odd duck in the international arena that is the defeated French but not occupied state that we now call Vichy France. It's a, it is an odd duck. Odd duck is a good way to put it. Uh, half of France more or less is occupied. Continental France is occupied. Then you have this technically independent, neutral Vichy French state, which also controls the French empire, which is the really critical bit of this for Americans. I don't think Americans are so worried about what happens in Lyon or Toulon, but they're very worried about what happens in Dakar, which uh, controls that Atlantic passageway. They're very worried about what might happen in Morocco. They're very worried about what might happen in Saint-Pierre-Miquelon off the Canadian coast. So the questions they're asking themselves are, what strategic impact does this have on us? And every time they examine the problem, they realize this creates some real risk. This creates some real danger to the United States. If we can't transport supplies across the Atlantic Ocean because the Vichy fleet is in the way, if the Germans start using ports in Morocco and Dakar or even Cameron Bay in, in Indochina, what does this do for American security? And every time they turn around, the answer is, this is really bad. We need to figure out a way through it. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that there, uh, you know, I started with the thesis that you started with, that this is realpolitik and sometimes states do things that they don't like to do, but they have to do them. But there were voices very early on in this process saying, you can't negotiate, you cannot work with Vichy. It's not going to work, number one, and it's raising these terrible moral questions, number two, that we should be trying, if we're going to build a world based on the Atlantic Charter and based on all the ideals that we're fighting for, any relationship with Vichy at all is working counter to those ideals. And again, there were plenty of British strategists who were telling the Americans the same thing. So at, by the time I was done doing the research and, and starting the writing, my views had changed from a, a dirty hands hypothesis that kind of this is what you have to do to a recognition that Americans saw a lot of what they liked in Vichy, or saw in Vichy a lot that they liked, that that Vichy was, at least in its early iterations, trying to be as pro-American as it possibly could. It was anti-communist. It was conservative, small c, in the way that it was understanding European security, and that all of these things were attractive to Americans, far more attractive than the movement that Charles de Gaulle was starting to build in London. So, it's a complicated picture that does not always reflect so beautifully on what Americans were thinking in the 1940s, and I think goes beyond the sheer panic and fear into ways in which the Americans saw deals they could cut that would pursue many varied American interests that Vichy controlled or had influence on. Right. I think it's worth pointing out that this question of the French fleet you know, if if someone has a, a passing or a general knowledge of World War II, they might not take that risk that you mentioned of the French fleet, for example, very seriously. But it was a very powerful navy at the time, right? It was modern. It was modernized in the 1930s. On the whole, though, I mean, the Atlantic's pretty wide. How practically serious was that risk versus how theoretically like how was that risk assessed you know is it just well okay it's above the minimum so we have to act 
Or did they really feel like there might be French ships sailing under German orders, kind of blockading the Panama Canal or Lord knows what kind of Caribbean presence and that sort of thing? Right. It's not too hard for a security official, an intelligence officer, a Navy or Army officer in the plans department to dream up some reasonably realistic and pretty frightening scenarios. France's lone aircraft carrier is in Martinique in the Caribbean. It's very close to the Panama Canal, as you know. It theoretically could put airplanes on it that could strike Miami, could strike New Orleans, could strike targets all across uh, the Atlantic Basin for the United States. There are reports that come in, I cite them in the book, that there are air bases in Senegal that Vichy is building, that the runways are too long for any plane in the Vichy or French commercial fleet to need at the same time that Germany is building four-engine bombers called the America Bomber. So it's not that difficult to envision a world or or German submarines being refueled in Guadeloupe or, or Martinique. It's not hard to envision these things. So these, again, are places where the United States had never thought there was a serious security risk. There was never a concern pre-1940 of the Colombian Navy or the Venezuelan Navy or the Brazilian Navy being a, a, a threat or a hindrance to American operations. Now you have to take into consideration that that entire theater is open. And then as now, analysts tend to think in terms of what is the most dangerous threat and what is the most likely threat. So even people who think that this might not be the most immediate or likely threat can also see that if it comes to pass, you have a real problem. If you put German airplanes on that French aircraft carrier or the French start refueling German submarines in the Caribbean or in Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, uh, off, you know, very close to New England, uh, you, you have some serious strategic problems that you're going to have to deal with. So they're not insignificant problems, even if from a perspective of 80 years, it looks like they weren't the most immediate problems. Right. I think one of the aspects of that that I found interesting uh, in particular is this distinction between you know, the most likely threat and then the most potentially dangerous threat. And I think that's something that at least in my layman's world of being interested in, in some of these strategic questions, uh, even as far as current events goes, is maybe underappreciated or maybe overlooked uh, sometimes. Especially if you're in a situation when you're still building the resources to deal with these challenges. So if the ships are not online yet, the men aren't trained, the planes aren't available, the officers aren't ready to command, where do you want to put those resources? And to think about putting them in a place that you had presumed was safe is a mental adjustment that is not an easy one to make. Right. And this then is part of the diplomatic series of decisions uh, that is made, right? So the US takes a route to have a formal relationship with Vichy France, despite what they know about the collaboration and despite what they know about Vichy France's policy towards its Jewish citizens, which was essentially to begin, even before the Germans you know, demanded it, uh, to begin assisting in deportation and other kinds of uh, and other kinds of contributions, let's say, to what ended up being the Holocaust, if I have followed all of that uh, as it was. I think that's right. And what, what fascinated me about the Vichy story was the number of ways that Vichy connects to all of these various parts of our understanding of the Second World War. So in the case of the deportation of Jews in Germany, it's very hard, to, or Poland, it's very hard for Americans to get information about this, or Britain, it's hard to get information about what the Germans are doing. But in Vichy, France, there's enough people there, and there's enough of a kind of network of people there that reports that Vichy is rounding Jews up. Those reports come to the United States, credible reports come to the United States well before reports of what's happening in Poland reach the United States. So the very first comment that any senior American official makes about the Holocaust is Cordell Hall referring to what Vichy is doing. So it's the first public statement by any American official. So again, the way in which Vichy was connecting to all of these various things, Africa, Asia, Syria, Lebanon, just kept making me understand the centrality of France in this story of World War II and how much we have disregarded the centrality of that in our dominant narratives of the war. And the Holocaust was just another example of that. Yeah, I'm envisioning a very powerful scene where Tom Hanks gives that speech in the in the upcoming film. There you go. Um, Anyone's listening, there you go. That's <laughs> Now, the other thread, let's say, aspect, uh, thread to this story is not only the, the U.S. 
Vichy connection, which is, of course, complicated, and there are Americans who oppose this, uh, as you mentioned, but it complicates things in the so-called special relationship with the UK, right? And there's this lovely quote from Churchill that I'd never heard before, uh, something to the effect of, you know, we can't each have our pet Frenchman. Our own French so, pet Frenchman, right? <laughs> right. So, so take us through how, what inspired Churchill to make that comment. You know what the the, the eye opening thing for me right before COVID the first place I heard the word COVID nineteen I was in uh, Ethiopia I was in Addis Ababa and there's a Commonwealth cemetery there uh, which is not easy to find but we managed to find it with British troops South African Jews Free French uh, all of these people buried in the same cemetery right next to the cemetery where the Italians are buried. And that got me really thinking about the ways in which that East Africa campaign, which my friend Andrew Stewart has described as the first allied victory of World War II, this 1940-41 campaign to get Haile Selassie back on his throne in Ethiopia, really sets a working relationship between the British and Charles de Gaulle, because those two forces are working together to achieve this imperial or quasi-imperial aim I say quasi-imperial because they're not trying to annex Ethiopia. They're just trying to get the Italians out. Uh, that gave de Gaulle and Churchill uh, a way to work together and a reason to work together that the United States did not have. The United States did not care about the future of Addis Ababa or the future of Haile Selassie. So right from the beginning, there's a way in which Churchill is recognizing or recognized, I should say, that even though Charles de Gaulle was a difficult human being with very little legal claim to anything that he was claiming. Nevertheless, this was the movement that was going to be the, the, the partner in this anti-Axis campaign. So right from the beginning, the United States and Britain have chosen different directions, and, and they never really do, I think, figure out how to reconcile that. And the Americans choose a, a third individual in all of this, a general by the name of Henri Giraud. So the, the policies that the Americans pursue are never consistent they are uh, never aimed at a clear grand strategy, and they seem always to be sticking the knife into what the British want to do. Cordell Hall threatened to resign twice, both times during World War II, connected to policy about Vichy France. So there's obviously something in there that's 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 really creating this tension. And so uh, I was interested in exploring that and exploring the ways in which the British and the Americans just, whenever they argue disproportionately, it seems to be about something connected to the French. Yeah. And that doesn't get any easier once the US is fully in the war and Operation Torch is launched, right? Operation Torch is this invasion of North Africa in 1942. It's one of the first kind of major offensive operations in, well, let's say in the general European theater involving the United States. And then there are some decisions to be made about what to do with Vichy France. And I think, you know, it really seemed like a crescendo of tension in the book. And these new characters come in, French Admiral Darlan, uh, there's assassinations, there's kind of a deal with the devil. This, this seems to be where it reaches almost breaking point. I don't know if you meant it to come across that way, but at least that's how it felt to me. Yeah, I, I was. I'm wondering who in Hollywood we could get to play Darlon. But if we can back <laughs> up just uh, just a step, if you take France out of the equation, then Operation Torch becomes the story that historians have typically told. The Americans want to do X, the British want to do Y, and the more experienced British talk the less experienced Americans into doing what the British wanted. If you put France back into that story, it's a completely different history. The United States is trying to rescue itself from a failed Vichy policy that is incredibly unpopular. There are elections coming up in 1942 for the United States. Vichy may collapse on its own accord. If it does, the Germans are just going to take everything over. So if you bring France back into this picture, the reason why the Americans agreed to do Operation Torch becomes completely different. And then, as you said, once they get on the ground in North Africa, they realize that this situation is infinitely more complicated than they thought it was going to be, and they find themselves struggling yet again. But it's just that case of, I think, especially in the U.S. historiography, but I think in the British historiography as well, after 1940, France just sort of gets written out until de Gaulle comes to Paris in August 44. When you do that, you are erasing major factors out of this story that that make it difficult to understand what's actually happening and why. Yeah, and especially when you have this 
cast of characters almost competing in a way. You have De Gaulle, you have Giraud, and then you also have, well, before Giraud, I guess in a way, you have Darlin, who leaves the scene in dramatic Dramatic, fashion. dramatic fashion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what is that? What is that nexus like? Like, what what are the political forces? How are they interacting between the U.S., the U.K., and then these three prominent uh, Vichy individuals, basically, who are who are involved in the North Africa situation? Yeah, they're not communicating very well at all. In fact, uh, nobody told Charles de Gaulle that the Allies were going to land in North Africa. When he wakes up and someone tells him, he makes a response something like, very well, I hope Vichy throws them back into the sea. Lord Allen Brooke, the, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, wrote him a beautiful note that I've quoted many times over the years. I understand your bitterness, now overcome it. Right. I understand why you're mad. Now let's move on and get done what we have to get done. So nobody's really cooperating with anybody. Uh, when the Americans start to cut some deals with Darlan, Churchill went before the House of Commons to say, look, we had nothing to do with this. Alexander Cadogan, I think it is, maybe it's Anthony Eden, writes a note and says, look, if I find out that the Americans had planned to do this all along, I promise there will be, and I'm quoting here, a god-awful row with the Americans. Like, everybody's mad at everybody. And it's difficult for anybody to figure out a policy that's going to satisfy enough people to bring stability to North Africa. The one thing all French agree on, regardless whether it's de Gaulle, Darlan, Giraud, is that North Africa must remain French. That's the one thing that they all agree on, that there will be no talk of independence for North Africa. So it's an extremely complicated story, and, and Crescendo is a way to think of it. I also sort of think of it as a building storm um, that you can you can see the thunder and lightning and dark clouds headed your way, and then the assassination of Darlan breaks that in a way that a, a summer storm breaks a heat wave, kind of, and the American decision to just leave it in the hands of the French and move on. We're here to kill Germans. We're not here to reestablish political governance in North Africa. So it's uh, it's a very complicated story with a lot more characters than I put in the book, uh, for simplicity's sake. Otherwise, yeah. it would have been a much larger book, and our Hollywood casting agents would have a much more difficult time <laughs> uh, finding young actors with French accents. I was just going to say that's a, a rare quality to be able to do a French accent uh, reasonably well. In a way, it seemed like the, the Darlan assassination and he was assassinated, by the way, by a fellow Frenchman, right? Mm -hmm. um, gets the U.S. off the hook, in a sense. But it's fascinating. And I know counterfactuals are kind of a minefield. They're a rabbit hole, but they're almost irresistible. They're not only a rabbit hole, they're kind of a black hole that just pulls you towards them. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, what do you think are some of the possibilities if Darlan had not been assassinated and this U.S. kind of deal with the devil uh, had lasted longer, maybe a much longer time. So for our listeners, Darlan is this incredibly uh, reactionary, pro-German, anti-British, anti-American, incredibly nasty guy. But after he made this deal with General Mark Clark in North Africa, Darlan did what the Americans fundamentally wanted him to do. He stabilized North Africa so the Americans could continue to move east and fight the Germans in Tunisia. So by the time of his assassination, Americans are saying things like, well, he may not be our, our preferred preference, but he's doing what we need him to do. He's playing big league ball, as, as Mark Clark said. So I can envision a world, and again, I, I share all of your concerns about counterfactuals, but I can, can, I can easily conceive of a world where if Darlan does not get assassinated, the United States finds a way to put him in power and isolate Charles de Gaulle one way or another. And then Darlan becomes the head of a post-war France, much in the same way that Franco was running a post-war Spain and Salazar was running a post-war Portugal. And the United States dealt with both of them, allowed Portugal especially into NATO, dealt with those dictatorial powers with very little problem. I can envision that happening without too much historical imagination or too many what-if statements in between, unless de Gaulle found a way to, to get rid of Darlan in his own way. So I, I think there's a way in which you can envision a very, very, very different France that comes out of this. I can also see another counterfactual, which the Americans never really did consider, so maybe it's a bad counterfactual, where the Americans say, look, we're just going to we're just going to give the people of North Africa their independence. We're going to give the Algerians and Moroccans what they want, and we're going to push the French out of here. We're going to let them 
you know, get out gracefully or get out slowly, but we're going to make it quite clear that we no longer support French colonialism in North Africa. Again, I don't think that's a likely scenario, but if it had happened, it would have been earth shattering to American relations with North Africa and to, of course, France's relations in North Africa. And probably more than that, I mean, the domino effect of that would have made for an awesome movie, but I digress. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you mentioned that your thinking changed a little bit towards uh, a bit of a reassessment of the motivations for the American decisions to work with uh, Vichy France, at least uh, for the time being. Were there any other surprises? Were there any things, other things that you kind of stumbled upon that you weren't expecting that caused you to change course, aside from that kind of overarching realization? Well, I think some of it was understanding just how unbelievably complex this was in France. There are a number of quite clear villains. Jean-Francois Darlan is a, is a clear villain. Pierre Laval is a clear villain. But underneath that level, it gets complicated really, really fast in, in France. And just trying to think through the many ways in which France is trying to deal with the humiliation of the collapse, the reality of the occupation, the reality that the British and Americans are bombing French cities, killing thousands of French people. The British sank part of the French fleet in July of 1940, killing 1,300 Frenchmen. The extraordinary complexities of what's going on inside France and the way that events very far away, events in Baghdad, events in Damascus, the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, is constantly shifting and changing these dynamics inside France. So One of the reasons I studied French history, one of the reasons why I I love France is is for exactly the reason of all of this complexity in its history. But I think I came to appreciate even more just how incredibly complex this period was for the French and how difficult it was to find answers when the context continually is shifting, when the realities are constantly changing around you. The American and British invasion of North Africa is a major shift. The invasion of Normandy, of course, is a major shift. The invasion of Provence, Operation Dragoon, which most Americans and Brits pay very little attention to, is dramatically important for the French. The the Second Armored Division, the famous French uh, division that, that rolls through Paris all the way to Strasbourg, their role in all of this, it's just incredibly complicated, incredibly rich, and incredibly difficult to convey to an audience not deeply steeped in French history. You basically took those last words right out of my mouth, because that's something that we on on our YouTube documentary channels that we produce also struggle with when we try to deal with French topics, is it's just not as engaging for a lot of uh, people in the English-speaking world, even though it probably should be, to be honest, in terms of historical be, yeah. weight. And as far as France in the, in the Second World War goes, one thing that uh, you do touch upon in the book is the communist aspect, right? Mm. Because it's a big, important communist uh, presence in France that also changes halfway through, partway through when Germany invades the Soviet Union. It has an impact on the American approach. So yeah, there are all sorts of uh, different aspects. What What is actually, let's take just a, a minute, if you will. What is this deal with the communists in France and how does it have an impact on US thinking about the how to approach the situation? Yeah, I actually just wrote this. I'm doing a, I might be doing next summer a trip of the French resistance through France, doing a kind of staff ride tour through France. And the line that I wrote was that we're better off thinking about French resistances, plural, because there is the right wing monarchist French resistance that actually is responsible for killing Darlan. But once you get to Paris, that resistance is is led by communist resistance cells. They're led by people who fought for the Spanish Republic. They're led by people who had connections to the Soviet Union. They're led by these these cells that because they're members of the Communist Party are sort of used to being underground. They're used to thinking about the resistance in a certain kind of class-based kind of way. That that is to say, they don't want the Second World War to end and then go right back to the old capitalist, what they saw as an unfair capitalist exploitative economic system that weakened France before the war. So the Americans don't want to answer your question directly. The Americans and British are very reluctant to give these people weapons for obvious reasons. They also have a sense that the Americans do at any rate, that de Gaulle might help defeat the Germans and get them out of Paris, but that he won't be able to keep these communists 
down. Uh, De Gaulle was, at least in the early stages, although he himself is vehemently anti-communist, was willing to work with groups on all points of the French political spectrum if they were if they were willing to help get rid of the Germans. There is a fear that the phrase the Americans use is that he'll become another Kerensky, meaning that as the Russian leader did in 1917, he will help to lead one revolution only to be outsmarted by the communists in a second revolution. So the Americans really aren't sure what to do. They know that de Gaulle himself does not have pro-communist sentiment at all, but they're afraid that the, the fallout could be a communist French state. And the Americans would much prefer, if they're only given two choices, would much have preferred a state under the hard control of Darlan than a communist state, or to even take that risk uh, with de Gaulle in charge. So the politics get very confusing very, very quickly in France. And that's just talking about Paris. We haven't even gotten out to the countryside yet. Right. There, there are a lot of strands in, in this question that go back in French history, right, to the idea of revolutions eating their children, to right. the Vendée monarchist tradition, right. to the tradition of the radicals and the Paris Commune in 1848. So these kinds of forces um, are not that new when they come together in the Second World War. Yeah, I actually had an, an early version of this book, an early outline of this book, where I was going to start in 1870. I had another version of this book in which I was going to start in 1789. And then I thought, no, I can't do that. I got to take an appetite suppressant and only deal with the Second World War. But I, I definitely had a sense in which you could think about this book as really, or this problem, really as beginning with those Frenchmen who are wanting to pursue the revolution and keep the revolution alive. And those people, their intellectual inheritors show up in Vichy, who think that the revolution had been a grave mistake and they want to roll back what the revolution was. So there is definitely a way in which this book could have started in 1789. I don't know that that many people would have been interested in reading that history, but I think there's a very viable way in which one could do it that way. Well, I mean, you could always go the Star Wars uh, route, and you could publish the prequels kind of after the yeah, right, original right. comes <laughs> out, right? And on the topic of movies, actually, I'm not, I'm not just being a glib. I wanted to try to make a link because there's a famous Hollywood movie, Casablanca, set in North Africa, that plays a role in the book. And I know that, you know, you've made a career in a sense of many things, but one of the aspects of of your career is publishing books that are not only that don't only have scholarly weight but that are accessible to the general interested reading public and one of the tools that you used in this book is to make that link and and kind of make use that touchstone of familiarity with the Casablanca film if i remember right most or possibly all chapters all of them the headings are a reference to the film so why did you make that choice in particular. And then in general, can you talk a little bit about how you try to marry these two concepts? How do you walk that line between, you know, writing a book that the profession of history is going to be enriched by, or you're going to make a contribution, you know, to the, to the science, to new knowledge, and that it's going to be on bookshelves and someone's going to get it for their history buff uncle for Christmas? Like, how do you put those things together? Well, I was fascinated by Casablanca in part because the movie is made while all this is going on. So it's a primary source. Uh, there's that wonderful scene at the end of the movie where Claude Rains uh, takes a, is ready to take a sip of water. He sees that it's Vichy water and he drops it in the, in the waste paper basket. So that's a scene that no American would have needed an explanation. They would have understood what that was. Today, as the Jeopardy example probably shows, no one understands what that scene is or why that scene is so important, why, why, why a man is being shown throwing a bottle of water away. Uh, so I was immediately interested in the way that that movie was making commentary about the world in which they were living and, and what, what they were saying about that. The question where Humphrey Bogart says to Claude Rains, are you pro Vichy or are you free French? And Claude Rains refuses to answer. So I was interested in the ways in which all of the, the movie was explaining all of that. And I, you know, as many great ideas come to you, I was out walking my dog and I thought, you know, a lot of the lines from that movie do hit on the kinds of things I'm, I'm trying to get at. So I wrote it that way. I sent it off to my editor, Kathleen McDermott at Harvard Press. Uh, the first set of published review of uh, reader reports that came back said, "No, you got to drop that. It looks too, it looks, too, it looks too unserious. It looks too, it looks like he doesn't really take the thing seriously." 
the next reader wrote wrote in and said, "Oh my gosh, that's brilliant! Keep that." So I thought, let's let's do it. I mean, let's do it. I mean, what um, we're talking about chapter titles here. It's not the end of the world, but a lot of people have remarked on it uh, all positively, which I'm which I'm glad to see, except for one professional reviewer who did say maybe that wasn't the the, the way to go. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable with that selection. I thought it was a fun way to get into the, a very serious topic, and uh, I, you know, it's it's a way to connect. Something everybody, almost everybody, I think older than about 30 years old knows that movie. Um, I'm finding that younger people typically have not seen it. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, it's a way to connect people's experiences to to history. And I think that's always worth doing. So you heard it here first, folks. If you want inspiration to write a, a best-selling and intellectually important history book, go walk your dog. And yeah, you never get- know... Get a crazy golden retriever who needs tons and tons of walks. <laughs> that is the secret. Um, yeah, I wanted to bring in another strand of things, and that is kind of the the echo of Vichy France, in particular in the English-speaking world, you know, in which both of us grew up and of which we're both a part, and probably many of our, if not most of our listeners as well. And I'm going to start with a personal anecdote from my side. I was probably, I'm going to say 12 or 13 when I read my first book, I'm revealing how much of a geek I am now, but when I read my first book about the fall of France in 1940, I found it. My grandfather, World War II veteran, he had a cottage in uh, eastern Ontario, go there in the summer. I found it on the cottage bookshelf. And I read it and I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? In fact, I just brought it back here to Vienna from my parents' place one month ago when I went for Christmas. And that book was 60 Days That Shook the West by Jacques Benoit Méchin who was, as I discovered many years later, a Vichy, he was involved in the Vichy regime. He was kind of a journalist, but he was involved in the regime. He was a collaborationist. And yet his book is the one that my grandfather, who was kind of a self-taught, interested in history because he experienced the war and fought in it. It's the one that ended up on his bookshelf and the one that 13-year-old me in Canada in the 1990s picked up. How does that happen? How does the memory of Vichy end up making that possible. Well, this is the other genius, I guess, of Charles de Gaulle in a political sense. De Gaulle's uh, understanding of this is that Vichy is this kind of parenthesis in French history, that it doesn't represent France and it doesn't demonstrate French traditions. And so other than Laval and Pétain and a couple of other particularly nasty guys, France does the same thing that the Allies do to Germany. They pick a few people, they put them on trial, they execute them, and then they say to everybody else, Go on with your lives. And for France, this is part of a way of making sure that there's not a communist versus a left-right civil war at the end or a resistance collaborationist civil war at the end of all of this. The price that gets paid is a lot of people that did some pretty unpleasant things uh, not only walk away – Many of them die peacefully in their sleep, and many of them go on to become writers. Coco Chanel, who was a collaborationist, goes on, of course, to become one of the wealthiest, most famous women in the world. A lot of people with a lot of blood on their hands walk away, at least for several decades, until their past sometimes catch up with them, as they did with with Maurice Papon and some other uh, Vichy bureaucrats. Uh, Francois Mitterrand, for a while, was 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 asked about his his involvement as a young bureaucrat. But that's what happens. I mean, most people walk away from the Vichy experience with very little blood on their hands or very little uh, uh, punishment. And uh, the understanding, again, is that this was a complicated period. Choices were made. Decisions were reached. And uh, we, we're not going to pick at that scab too much. And it's only become recently, I think, that France has really begun to to get more introspective in the way that Germany did, to its credit, a generation or two earlier. France is now doing the same thing. And there are now... French Netflix specials. There are, they're changing the wording of some monuments. Uh, they're doing some things to raise a little bit more awareness of what happened in the Vichy period. But um, it's not surprising that people like Benoit Méchin, again, Coco Chanel, a man called René de Chambron that I talk about in the book, uh, Chambron gave a flag to the Army War College, which is sitting pretty much one story below me in the 1970s. So not only did he not face punishment for what he did, uh, he ended up Coco Chanel's lawyer. He ended up in a position to give flags to the United States, and Chambron didn't do anything as nasty as what you know someone like Papon or or Laval did, but he was nevertheless deeply implicated in the in the regime and walked away probably with his reputation enhanced, if anything. 
The tentacles of history are uh, extremely long and extremely uh, sticky, I'm afraid. So while we're on this topic, while we're past the actual events and we're into the echoes of them and the memory and the collective memory and the processing of that, you mentioned something that made me think of current events in the book. And uh, I don't want to push this idea of, oh, you know, the purpose of studying history is to learn the lessons of it. That's a very debated and debatable concept. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you write that uh, the fall of France is a study in statecraft on the part of the US, essentially, in this case, primarily, when the international system basically collapses overnight or radically changes overnight. And I have to say, you know, this year, February or last year, February 24th, when Russia invades Ukraine, a lot of the assumptions and a lot of the pillars of the international system either collapsed or are quaking and we don't quite know where they're going to settle. Do you think that there are any parallels between those two scenarios? And I know I'm pushing this a little bit, but I'm just, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just so curious about this idea of a sudden dramatic weakening of the international system and how people then react. Yeah, Timothy Garnash just had a lovely phrase talking about the German decision to send leopard tanks into Poland and Ukraine. And he said, Germany is facing a situation where the, the old world is gone and no one knows what the new one will be yet. And I think that is something we as historians have to be really careful about. We have to understand that people in that time period did not know what the new world, they knew the old one had gone. They didn't know what the new one was going to look like. And this is another reason why many people in Vichy are willing to take a chance on the regime because it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And it's an anchor of stability in a world that has become incredibly unstable. And I mentioned it in the book. I mean, to me, I think the book was put to bed and done before it must have been before the Ukraine uh, war began. But we were certainly living through COVID as I was going through all of this. And another situation where the things you thought you knew go away and you have to figure out what the new world is going to look like. Now, it looks like some of those changes from COVID were, were relatively temporary. I don't think Ukraine is going to be temporary. I think the changes it's bringing in France just announced a one-third increase in its defense spending. Um, Germany's finally deciding that it's going to send leopard tanks uh, to Poland and Ukraine. These are these are seismic Zeitenwende, is the German word, um, changes that that they're going through. So, yes, I think what happened in 1940 was quite similar, with people looking around and saying, "Okay, the old world is gone. What do we do about that? And what choices do we think we have to make?" and what mental shifts are we going to have to make? And in the American case, as in the German case, it means more defense spending. It means greater risks in terms of getting dragged into a conflict. It means all of these things that are that are really scary. So I think there's a lot to learn. I think there's a lot of parallels from the First World War period as well that, that I see. But I definitely see what Europe is dealing with now as similar to what the United States was looking at with Vichy in 1940. The old, the old language, the old lexicon is just gone, and you're going to have to write another one, and that's really, really difficult to do. Yes. As, uh, as the old saying goes, if it's true, uh, may you be cursed to live in interesting times, right? Yeah. And so I think that's, that gives us some food for thought. You know, Troubled times lead to difficult and uncertain decisions. In 1940, as uh, as maybe they are today, and of course, I suppose we're all hoping that uh, that we make the right ones as often as possible. Uh, Dr. Michael Nyberg, I want to thank you for accepting my invitation and for coming on our podcast today. I really enjoyed the discussion, and I hope that all of you out there listening did as well. If you're interested, the book is called "When France Fell: The Vichy Crisis and the Fate of the Anglo-American Alliance." And we will put some links in the description as to where you can order it and get your hands on your copy. Uh, Dr. Nyberg, thanks again for joining us. And I will see you all, or you will all hear me and our next guest in the next podcast. The Real-Time History Podcast is a production of Real-Time History. I'm your host, Jesse Alexander, and each episode is recorded and edited by Philip Janssen. If you listen to this podcast on Nebula or Patreon, thank you so much for the support. 
We couldn't produce this show without you. 